<laughs> you know, it's funny. Like I was at a wedding years ago and uh, Kanye was there. It's, it's a story. This is before I was religious. Okay. This is before I was religious. So I knew these girls and they had a deal with Motown. They were singers. And so they were working with this producer named No ID who eventually became um, president or CEO of a Def Jam Records, you know, in, in New York. So he was getting married. And so I, they, they got invited to the wedding and they were living with me because they didn't have any money, whatever, and I had this bigger apartment, whatever. So these two sisters they were living with, they were sisters. They're called Sweet Rush at the time. They changed their name. But anyway, so they took me to this wedding. And this guy that I, I used to, I grew up with is a basketball player. His name's Baron Davis, right? He used to play whatever, you know, Baron Davis? Yeah. Okay. So I grew up with Baron. And so I walk in there and he sees me. He just stands up. He starts screaming my name, right? And I look over and I'm like, oh my God, Baron's here. And who's sitting next to him? Kanye, Common Sense, and Big Sean right there. And so Kanye's looking the whole thing, right? So my, my thing was like this. Kanye was at the wedding and it's like, you know what? I never try, I, I try to position myself correctly with people and not be the fan. Because if I see him again somewhere else, I'm that guy. You know what I mean? So I was like trying to play it. But I had one experience with Kanye at this wedding because the guy, No ID, who's a producer, he was, he was people were giving speeches. So his dad gives up and gives a speech. And his dad calls his new wife by the name of the old wife, right? His, <laughs> And so I think Kanye was, I think, the only one who caught it. And he starts cracking up. And I was cracking up. And he turned around. And that was the only moment. But other than that, like, that that was my uh, <laughs> interaction. But, yeah. Random well, Off story. the record, obviously. No, his life was crazy. His first Shabbat dinner was with Madonna and Demi Moore. <laughs> no, I know. But this is off off record. We're not going to put this up. Yeah, this is whatever you guys want. We're talking. Everything. You want the Kanye thing in there and the, your whole friend? This is my life before I was Jewish. I, right. I, I, I mean, I, I got Drake stories. I got tons of stories. You Yo, know Drake I mean? signing that yeah. petition? <laughs> <laughs> this week's episode is brought to us by Zahav Jewelry with one L. Hi, welcome to October 7th, Emotionally Raw coverage. Today is January 30th. It's the 116th day of the war, Tuesday afternoon. I wouldn't call it a sunny day. I'd call it like a sunny hour in the middle of a very, very rainy week with lots of wind and lots of gales. What are they called? Gales of wind? Gusts of wind? It's been a really, really, really stormy like gray skies and I think about these clouds and how they're able to just absorb so much water before they pour down on us like sometimes clouds can only hold like five minutes of rain and sometimes they hold like hours of rain it's really really enigmatic anyway joining us here today is Rabbi Mordechai Yosef Ben Avraham Rabbi public speaker activist 2016 Republican candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives in the 37th Congressional District in California, and the author of Mind of a Black Jew, The Oldest New Way of Thinking, providing an analytical outlook on the moral and ethical positions of Orthodox Judaism told through the lenses of an African-American rabbi. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for making it out here during this stormy day you know i'm desperately trying to be more tel avivian so like any opportunity i get to like be in tel aviv and, and chill like i'm just really happy about it 
And you live, are you still living in Masharim these days? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not living in Masharim. But you know what? I miss it. I live like actually close by uh, the Tachanan Markhazit, the central bus station. Mm. So I'm like one street over on Torim. Hatorim. Nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. Before we get into, there's so many topics I want to get into with you today, but I'd like to kind of wind the clock back a little, if you will. You were born in Springfield, Ohio. Mm. You grew up in Calabasas, California, which mm. is where the Kardashians grew up. Mm. Incubus, the band is from there. Mm. You were born Sharif Hassan, a Sufi Muslim. <laughs> um, and now you're an ultra Orthodox Jewish guy yeah. who's been ordained as an Orthodox rabbi. Yeah. In your book, you also speak about Judaism as this religion of transformation and you speak about healing and getting up and facing adversity. And maybe that's a good place to start okay. our conversation today. Yeah. You know, I think the, um, the basis of that approach, a lot of it came from my parents. Uh, my parents, you know, are phenomenal people and they are both self-described coming from very dysfunctional families and they took approach early in their marriage that they didn't want to pass that things that they inherited and ideas onto us. I have three brothers and one sister. We're all like kind of like two years apart. So that outlook of like wanting to change yourself, wanting to heal, wanting to do better. I grew up with parents that were in that state. And so a lot of that, I think, shaped my outlook to look at, you know, things that are beneficial to me from that context, like how does it help me grow? How does it help me, you know, um, evolve as a person? And, and, you know, we grew a pretty good family, you know, very good family, uh, very close family. We have family meetings every week. Everyone still like expresses their feelings and people get offended very easily in our family. But that was, you know, something that I felt that was most important to me at a young age. And, and it led me, you know, here. <music> book you also talk about peace and the significance of lucky number seven mm. and shabbat and i was wondering if you could shed some light on that i mean I'll, I'll couch it by saying this you occupy a really fascinating space like you're in more contact with the ultra orthodox and orthodox community than me and dora are and I'm sure the conversations there since October 7th have been quite different than the ones that we're having in South Tel Aviv. Has your perspective on peace or God shifted in some sense since October 7th? You know, I, you know, the sensitivity to war um, is something that I, I inherited on uh, October 7th was wow, like war is like a real thing. Like people, because it's always been on television. You know, in America, like, you know, civil war is the closest thing we know or there's a gang battle or something. You know what I mean? But like the idea of people really wanting to like murder and kill indiscriminately and whoever's around, like that's just a completely different way of thinking than the West. And to be here and to experience that and to, to see the rockets and to have friends that are serving and, them having friends that died when, when the war first happened, you know, I used to, I give a lot of lectures and so I make a lot of friends. And so this one 
girl who came to one of my lectures probably like a month before was a medic in um, the the military. And she was down, you know, in the South and she just came back. She's like, we got to, we got to meet up. We got to chill. I got to talk. And I was like, okay, yeah, for sure. Right. And so I go and she has two other girls with her and they both were all working down in the South and they just were just telling stories and it was just crying and this, and it was just like, I'm just sitting in this room in this bar and they closed the door and we're just in there pounding beers and we were just telling just, I'm just listening. And just, I was just there. And, and I remember there was a moment where it was all these rockets were starting to come in and they were getting updates on their phone, but they thought they were airplane. They thought they were uh, uh, fighter jets coming in from the North. And so they were kind of like um, freaking out. And then they realized that it was actually more rockets from the South, but they make, made their way all the way to Haifa. And that was that, that moment. But it's, um, I became very sensitive, you know, to war in the, um, how it's not a solution, you know, and, and it's something that we should try to fight against at any cost possible. I guess my question is really, you know, during the Holocaust, after the Holocaust, a lot of Jews found themselves saying like, God, have you forsaken us? You know, and this started on October 7th, Shabbat, Simchat Torah, from a spiritual perspective, you know, I guess some people view this as a test, you know, other people might be saying, what's going on, God? You know, why, why again, like why on this day where we're supposed to be so joyous, you know, one of the holiest days in our year on Shabbat, the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. I mean, in terms of, of peace, in terms of, you know, that, that lucky number seven, if you will. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? You know, when you think about the people, you know, cause I thought a lot about it, like the people who passed away, you know, um, the people at the festival, the people in their homes and you think like, wow, like what's going on? Like how, like, what is God saying to us? You know, like, what is this dynamic? You know, what's, what's going on? There's an idea in Kabbalah that says that, a person's soul starts to leave their body like 30 days before they pass away. And it's like a slow dissemination of the soul, you know, leaving, leaving, leaving. And then there's the last moment and it's the moment that we witness, right? We witness like, Oh, a car accident, God forbid, or someone has a heart attack, whatever it is, God forbid. But it's, it's a process. It's not like an immediate thing. And there's different reasons why this process of, of death happens the way that it does. So when you, Look at it from that perspective. You think about all those people who bought tickets and were driving down there and, and, and you know, just, you know, looking to have a good time. And, and, and you think about like, you know, the, the, like someone's lifetime, right? How long a person lives? Why do they live? You know, all these different things. And these people who passed away in the south of, of Israel, you know, are pretty much going to be the reason why this whole re region is going to be saved eventually. Meaning that a lot of these ideas that are built around divisiveness and oppression and totalitarian, these are the people who are fighting against Israel, fighting against the West right now. You know, this is the Hezbollahs, this is the Hamas, this is the Houthis, this is the Irans and all these people, the people in Syria, Assad, all these people. 
And there's always that one triggering thing, you know, 50 years ago was a photograph, you know, in China of a kid standing in front of a tank. So this moment is that, so you say like, well, who are these souls that are going to be remembered for perishing and creating this whole battle against evil in essence? And that doesn't mean that everything about America is pure and everything about the Israeli government is pure. That's not the argument. The point is just saying there's women in Iran that are in jails right now being raped because they spoke up. You know, there's families that are, you know, shivering in places in Syria because they resisted and they got they got gassed, right? So what's going to stop that? You know, and so when we see the Jewish people and we see this experience, we have to look at those people who passed away and like, yes, there's a huge sadness. I mean, these are real people, real lives, but... You know, you think about the implications of that moment over the next 50 years, next 100 years. It's, um, those are very high souls is, is kind of like where I'm going. These are very, like, extremely high souls, like extremely high souls. And the fact that they died on that day when there's, like, such an opening in the heavens and it's just goodness and simcha and happiness. And say, say it didn't happen that way, because I said this to a group of religious guys. I said, you know what? Say it wasn't a, a festival. And say it was somewhere in B'nai Brak. And on this particular day, there was, you know, 500 people that didn't wake up. They just didn't wake up. They laid in their bed. There's no reason. There was no foul play, nothing. They just didn't wake up. What would we say? What would we say about those? Wow, these souls. Wow, they went up. Wow, so holy. Same thing right over here. This war has so many dimensions, and one of them is the aspect playing out on social media. And on social media, it's very popular for these Hamas apologists to constantly describe Israel as a white colonialist settler state of white supremacists. Um, and one of the discussions going on online from the pro-Israel camp is, hey, we're also Mizrahi Jews and we're also Ethiopian Jews and there's also black Hebrew Israelites here and African-Americans living here. And one of your recent interviews, I learned from you that the highest number of African-Americans per capita living outside of the United States is right here in Israel. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that in, in terms of your activism, in terms of working to say, hey, we're a multiplicity of voices. There are more than just those dimensions of us that you think exist. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I converted in 2013 and it was like something that I didn't think was going to be such an impactual thing because I was already learning at the Kabbalah Center in Los Angeles and I came to Israel and I'm learning all these big ideas or whatever. And I didn't think like this idea of, you know, you know, going into the mikvah and, you know, I'm not going to be too descriptive about what happens, but, you know, it's, it's a whole process, right? And brings me a lot of the whole thing, right? And um, when I came out of it, days after that, I just saw the world in a much different way. I just, I remember I when and it leads to what you just asked me, but I just want to create a context. It's like, I remember, you know, when I first, after I converted, I was getting into these arguments with my parents and I was like, what are you guys doing this? But I was challenging everything. I was like on fire, as you would say. And so my family's really big into therapy and they're like, 
what are we going to do? We need a person to talk to us collectively, you know? And I came to understand that what I was going through was that I saw this, I had this powerful shift and I was calling for my mom and dad to join me. And my way of doing that was by challenging this, whatever, and this, you know, oh, look at this way. And and this is a way to, to think about things. And so that was like me accepting that, like, I see things differently now, much more than even before. Something as silly as going into a mikvah and saying some brakot and coming out, like, you think, like, oh, what's the big deal? Okay, nice. Do it tonight, you know? It was such a shift. And so I just, like, went rogue on society. I was just like, you know what? I don't care anymore. I'm bringing new ideas to the table. And no matter how radical I have to be to do that, that's where I was at. And that's why I got into the Republican Party. I, I didn't have any connection to the Republican Party. My parents were Democrats. I grew up. My mom, you know, is into social justice to a degree. You know what I mean? Like, she grew up in that era, right? She's a professor. And so for me, like, the whole Republican thing was just like, well, if I wanted to join the Democrats in L.A., I got to push their agenda. And it's like, I'm not about that agenda. Like, this is about war, right? And so I joined the Republican Party. They're like, hey, you, you want to run in L.A.? You're black and we'll support you, whatever you want. Like, nobody's trying to run as a Republican in L.A. You know what I'm saying? Like, 37th District is the biggest Democratic district in the United States, right? And it's one of the most influential districts in the United States, right? And so when I ran as a Republican, I just wanted to go into the black community, Hispanic communities, other communities and say, hey, look how we're being manipulated. Look how they're convincing us. It's 2016, Look how they're convincing us and using victimization and using all these mind control tactics to make us into sheep, right? I was going to college campuses, USC, UCLA, you know, talking to their different clubs. So it was like a way of waging war against bad ideas. And, and so that was where I was at after conversion. And a little bit later, some of the rabbis said, hey, you know, why don't you maybe go to Yeshiva for a little while and come back and you could add more to the community. And so when I came to Israel... And I came to Shiva, it was just like, oh, okay, this is where it's at. Because one of the things I was most passionate about is like society is only focused on the effect. Everything that we see in the world, most of the conversations is all about dealing with the effect of things, not the cause. So the idea is like saying, like, you could have a Hezbollah, you could have a Hitler, a Makshimo, you could have all these different types of people, but they're going to recreating themselves in society until we address the issue, which is consciousness, which is a perception of reality, right? Because that's how people are being manipulated. That's how they're being tricked. So when I came to Yeshiva and it was this new library of information for thousands of years and discussions and new ways of seeing reality, I was like, this is where I need to be. I need to become this. I don't want to learn this. I want to become this. So living in Mer Sharim and that whole thing was like me physically indoctrinating myself and changing myself living, sleeping in like a little mat, you know what I'm saying? Like in the middle of Mirasharim in some place and it's like freezing cold and there's like no heat, nothing. During the summertime, there's no air, circulation, you got a fan in your face the whole time. There's like a thousand mosquitoes like waiting to attack you if this fan ever moved, right? But that's what was important to me, to be in that place because the system that I came from which is a quote-unquote great system, right? We grew up in the suburbs, you know, had expensive cars before I even was able to go to clubs, right? That's supposed to be the life, but it's not. It's a whole lie. The whole thing's a lie. No one has ever achieved happiness that route. No one, no one. Maybe pleasure, maybe a lot of pleasure, but never happiness. 
So when I came here, it was about re-transforming myself and re-transforming my perception. Um, the advocacy that I've been doing here in Israel is really a- around Jewish diversity. And I see that as one of our strongest weapons to dealing with this uh, misinformation war, right? And I think the initial stages of Israel was very much like, hey, you know, we are people that came, we, we came from tremendous tyranny, we want to have an equal-based society, you know, so there was this kind of like socialist type of a theme and, you know, wanting to like be accepted by the other nations. And so a very kind of like Euro-esque impression or expression of Israel was kind of like the introduction. And so that was, say, Aleph, right? But it's like now we're in the era of Bet or Gimel, whatever. And so now we've already, we're the eighth largest economy in the world. You know, we have one of the most proficient societies, you know, in human history in this short amount of time. So I think it's now, as as America has done with Obama, Obama was there to kind of clean up for Bush. They say like, oh, America's not really totalitarians. And, you know, the president woke up and said, God told him to bomb Iraq. You know, we're not there. We got community organizers and a really angry black woman, you know, and they're not taking that crap from anybody anymore. And this is a new America. And so I think um, Israel is in that position now in terms of engaging in the international world now and being able to show all the diversity. We have Jews from India. We have Jews from you know, Africa, we have Jews from other places in the Middle East. We have Jews that are Asian, you know, we, I mean, everything you could think of. And for some random reason, African-Americans decided to come and move here. And we have the highest population of African-Americans, self-sufficient, right? Not like living on like a, on America sending them money, right? Came here and they built their own communities. They built their own way. They learned a new language, interacted and have contributed to Israeli society, which is a community down in Demona. And there's many other African-American, you know, Jews that are reform and conservative and orthodox like myself. And we live here as well, but it's really the Demona community that, you know, is the basis of, I think there's like, you know, close to 4,000, you know, living here. So. Speaking of the community in Demona and black Hebrew Israelites, I think a lot of people don't know about this community within the Jewish community, outside of the Jewish community, I'm always learning stuff. Like I recently, someone told me that Lawrence, Kansas is not only the place where basketball was invented, but it's also where the first black Hebrew church was founded in the late 1800s. And this is not a monolithic community by any means. There are some factions that are wildly anti-Semitic. We saw some stuff coming out of there in October, I think in the Chicago area. I know that in Demona, there are people serving in the IDF, hugely pro-Zionist. So there's a lot of range here. I recently found out that MLK's mother was actually killed by a black Hebrew Israelite Mm. who took issue with the King's support of Israel and other um, philosophies. And You know, we're in this time right now where we went from Heschel and MLK marching together, over 50%, I think, of civil rights lawyers in the South in the 60s were Jewish. And now we're in this place where it's like Kanye West, Kyrie Irving, lots of anti-Semitism. I have no idea. Like, I'm not 
asking you just because, you know, you're black, but I am asking you because you've spoken about this publicly. Can you shed some light for us? Because I'm, I'm struggling to understand like what's going on, what has changed? Why are we seeing anti-Semitism on the rise with, within the African-American community? How have we grown so apart and how can we find our way back to each other? How can we foster dialogue? You know, the thing is, um, Jewish communities on a whole different Derek, you know, meaning that during those times of Martin Luther King, you know, Jews were in a very similar situation as African-Americans. You know, many Jews, you know, came from Europe and other places where there was like tremendous oppression and abuse. And this is even before the Holocaust, you know, um, uh, Jews were migrating to America and I think there was a certain kinship because Jews were kind of like put in the same areas, like in what we would call a ghetto or, you know, these types of things. They were in similar proximities. They were also in many ways denied the ability to enter mainstream society, you know, whether it's through education and these different things. So there was a lot of commonality, you know, but I think the Jewish community in many ways has grown because of the growth of Israel, because of the establishment of Israel. I think I think from 1967 on, it was in a way a whole new Israel, you know, versus in, from 1948 to that time, meaning that after that six-day war, it was kind of like a staple in the Jewish consciousness around the world. And I think a lot of the the thinking shifted within the Jewish world to really focus on investing money into Israel, building Israel in a lot of the domestic issues like civil rights and equality were always still, I mean, even today you have Jews, you know, Jews for justice, you know, you have all these different sentiments that still exist, but it's in lieu of another bigger idea, which is the Jewish people returning to their homeland and living. And I think that communication and that understanding of the Jewish narrative, you know, I don't think African-Americans have fully ever really embraced they look maybe as Israel's growing as they're not invested with us anymore. They're over here now. And the growth of, you know, countries like Russia and, and people in the Middle East have invested a lot of money to figure out ways to control and influence African-Americans. Right. And so that mechanism, like my mom told me when she was in school, you know, you had you know, activists like Angela Davis and these people were pro-communism and these things. And they were telling black people in the 60s that the reason why racism existed, it was because of capitalism and because of a free market. And if, it, if things were more socialist and their things were more equal and you didn't have this competition, then the big guy wouldn't have to, you know, step on the little guy. And so that really shaped the thinking, and as Israel grew and as America became even more divided in many ways, maybe that gap of understanding got filled in with Israel is no longer part of the oppressive people or the people who've been oppressed, but now they're actually on the other side. They're with the big guys who are oppressing us. And that's the conversation that's happening now. interesting because and correct me if I'm wrong I'm not I'm not super well versed in history from you know West Africa East Africa North South which I mean it's so many different histories going on within Africa but 
the sixties saw like a time of pan-African nationalism. You had, you know, different movements, lots of different, uh, lots of different countries in Africa became independent from the yoke of European colonialism throughout the 20th century. I mean, if Israel was getting stronger and then these nation states were coming about, you know, what, wouldn't you think that there would be a little bit more kinship, a little bit more camaraderie as we all kind of be, you know, emerge as these new states and they're just, there's such a divergence in terms of the stories that are being told. Like, even if you look at that movie, You People, I don't know if you saw it with Jonah Hill. I came out in January last year, you know, David Duchovny's in it, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Jonah Hill, Eddie Murphy. And there's this dinner table scene where Eddie Murphy's basically rehashing these like Farrakhan tropes and talking about like the Jewish slave owners and I guess this is a good segue into talking to you about the next thing, which is they were saying, oh yeah, there were all these like Jewish slave owners and Jewishes. You've been working on instrumental research about the Igbo Jews from West Africa who were not slave traders, but enslaved. Mm -hmm. And many of the African-Americans actually having been descendants mm -hmm. of Igbo Jews and other Jews from the continent. I mean, do you chalk it up to that, to the Soviet propaganda, to us not knowing enough, like to there not being enough educational initiatives to talk about that, you know, the Jews of, of color? I'm trying to also make sense of it and I'm trying to like think of ways forward, I guess. Yeah. You know, the thing is, is on that, on that point, you know, I give a class every week to a group of Jews in India, right? And it's interesting seeing people who look totally Indian speaking that same type of thing when they speak English, but they start speaking in Hebrew when we start the class and I ask me specific questions about words and this and what this could mean. And you just see a, it's like a total switch. I'm like, wow, like this guy's really Jewish, you know? But like if I just saw him on the street based off of the social conditioning, I wouldn't ever think that. And I think one of the brilliant aspects, and I and I, you know, people get, you know, kind of uncomfortable when I talk about it, but you know, one of the brilliant parts of the Talmud is that it was such an in-depth structure created by Chazal or sages that it allowed people to stay Jewish from the time of the temple to 2024, right? To the point that we returned. But the other people who are, say, descendants as well, people that are Igbo, people that are Indian, other places, they don't have that Masur because they left, they weren't a part of Babylon. So the people who were in the, the Jews that or the Israelites that went into Babylon, they're the ones who went into this idea of Yehuda and the kingdom of Yehuda and this idea of being a segue to the Mashiach, right? But these other groups, even Ethiopians, the Beta Israels, they didn't even have a lot of Talmudic understandings. There was a lot of issues there with marriage and divorce and remarriage. There's a lot of issues. And so point is, is just saying that the Igbos are, you know, According to Rabbi Chaim Konetsky, who gave a ruling in 2014, they are descendants of Israel. But being Jewish and being in the Jewish community is a different thing, right? And so that's where they have, over I say the last 20 years, maybe a little bit longer, they've been trying to acclimate themselves. African-Americans have always had a tradition that they were, you know, connected to Israel, you know? And a lot of people just looked at it as like a cry for like hope. You know, like we're in slaves and you just you, you'd start thinking of and fantasizing about what things could be or wanting to rationalize it. And I was there. But 
and I didn't even know this, you know, when I converted or got in this path, I, I mean, it's like, I didn't even know about it, but I learned about it much later. And, um, it's a big thing, you know, it's, it's, it's a big concept that there is a concept called Zera Israel. But the point is saying you have people from all over the world that say, hey, we're connected to Israel. You know, this we have this tradition, this type of thing. But nevertheless, um, I mean, how many millions of Spanish Jews that are just lost? They have no idea. They're calling themselves Christian and Catholic today. But they're descendants of people who were, you know, expelled by, you know, Queen Isabella. Right. So. The point is saying that there's a whole world of people that exist that have connections to Israel, that have DNA connections. And some of those people are Christian today. Some of them are Muslim. Some of them are atheists. Some of them are all types of things. So, But we have to be able to make a distinction between people who are descendants and then people who have taken on the covenant that was, was continued on since the destruction of the Second Temple and even First Temple because there is a separation. And so a lot of African-Americans may have those DNA and genetic connections and maybe even historical connections, but it doesn't put them in a position to define themselves as Jewish. Solid gold? Wait, what? What are you guys talking about? Solid gold is... Uh, Sounds like disco. No, it's like a... We're doing a small podcast inside the podcast. Oh, wow. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of Solid Gold. Dor's not feeling too well, and he's been waiting patiently for a little nugget from Rabbi Mordechai. I got a quick, small Drake story. Oh, do we want to give Drake airtime, though? He's against us. No, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. We J- Drake said ceasefire. Like, now, he said, he, uh, let's uh, re- let them re-up their fucking supplies, you know, as if there wasn't like, a ceasefire think, on October 6th. And Drake 6th. is sitting back, like, smoking his blunt, thinking about, like, yeah, when they do the ceasefire. He's a, he's a bagel Jew, come on. Then, yeah, exactly. He's a bagling no, he's it not, up. I he's say, bagling it up. I don't know if he's bagel. I wouldn't give him bagel. Okay, okay. All right, so fine. Let's bring them back. All right, fine. Okay, so anyways, so this is like, I, I don't even remember what year this is. This is years ago. This is, everything before conversion is like a fog. I have memories, but they're fogs. So I was at the BET Awards, and they had an open bar, and it was just like boom, 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 tossing, tossing, drinks nonstop. And they were playing really great music, whatever. A lot of people were there, famous people, whatever. And so I'm like, you know, chilling, you know, whatever, boom, boom, like dancing. I don't know, but whatever. I turn around. Who's right in front of me? Drake. And I'm like, oh, my God, Drake. I said that in his face. I said that. Like, I'm talking about, like, we're, like, face to face. I'm like, oh, my God, Drake. He's like, what's up, man? And Drake says, bro, I'm feeling your swag. Like, I was doing ties and, like, cool shirts and this whole thing. Now, that's not the significance of the story. He came out with an EP, like, a few song album later. He's dressed exactly like suit, tie, the whole thing. I'm not kidding you. The, the whole thing, yeah. So, like... Were you wearing the red tie, navy blue suit on a white no, shirt? No, this is, like, this is, like, my Donald Trump look. You know, right? Like, right? This is like... What was your tie like then? So, you know, the thing is, fashion-wise... I was very inspired by South African prep kids, the way the kids went to prep schools. So they would wear like, you know, like um, cargo type shorts and they would have dress shirts and a tie and they would have like a a short, like maybe a vest or sports jacket over it. And they would have vans and the short socks, the whole thing. So I was like, I was on a plane once and I just saw like all these like 
prep guys, you know, and they were from South Africa. Maybe they played soccer or something like this. And I was just on a plane once. I was like, damn, that's dope. And then Drake imitated you? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, it, he's so big, you know, like it, it sounds weird to say it, but yeah, like he, he definitely um, copied my swag. Use discount code DOOR24 for an additional 35% off your entire order. And if it's your first purchase, they'll even throw in a free pair of 14 karat gold earrings. And if you don't have a piercing and you still want to look amazing. I fantasize about having piercings. I fantasize and I also fantasize about being tattooed. I wish I was covered in tattoos. So, like, But you could also wear Zahav even if you don't want to get piercings. Really, no piercings, no problem. I didn't mention this in your bio, but you also worked in the film, music, and TV industry out in LA. Yeah. And can we talk about Kanye just a little bit? You know, his apology? What, yeah, do you, yeah, yeah. what do you make of it? I mean, now it's gone. It's not on his Instagram wall anymore. Now it's like pictures, very racy pictures of his new wife. Yeah. But very Kim, unkosher. But Kim, Kim had uh, the same thing though. He's obviously come out with this new album, Vultures, which I think is actually a reference to our people, you know, vultures mm. that he feels like vultures are picking at him, that these Jewish vultures, I, I think that it's a reference to that. What do you, what do you make of this? I, some people in the community, in our community have been saying, you know, we believe in forgiving. We should forgive. Some people are saying we absolutely have to forgive and, and we should never have, you know, there, there shouldn't be repercussions like him losing corporate deals because that just reinforces stereotypes that people have in their heads of the Jews being in control of the media and business and all these different things. And it doesn't help us get, you know, foster dialogue and foster understanding between the peoples It actually drives us apart. And having come from the industry and kind of knowing a little bit, you know, what might've motivated this and what, what's possibly at stake here. And then also having this like Jewish perspective, I was wondering if, if you cared to weigh in on the Kanye. Yeah. You know, I mean, Kanye, you know, and his rants have like put me on TV, like at least like 15 times in the last couple of years. You know what I mean? So like he's opening doors for Jews, you know, but, but, but on a serious note, you know, I think it's something that we could talk about, now that we're in Israel, is what type of role have we as Jews had to play in, you know, white supremacist colonialist culture, right? Like, what roles have we played? Like, even when you, you look at the trope of Jews being bankers and these type of things, I mean, that, that started in Europe, right? The churches made Jews be the, the money collectors and the people who were giving taxes, Right. Not that they wanted to, it was a form that they thought it was a low-class job, right, that they gave to the Jews to do that. And so I think there is a dynamic where now that we're in Israel, where we don't necessarily have an oppressor. I mean, we have our own stuff we're dealing with that's, you know, limiting us, and we're, we're trying to grow out of it. Everyone is from all different sides. But in America, there is a dynamic where a lot of black people are seen as, as products and commodities and not as human. And when you look at the history of the music industry, these other industries, you know, black people have, you know, been raped, you know, they've been, the, the, the deals that were structured, the wealth that was allowed to be created, the catalogs and the publishing and all these things. It's like, it's, it's, it's like when Jay-Z and these guys are talking about, oh, well, I'm getting it because of everybody who couldn't get it, you know, these types of things. These are real things. 
And as a community, we do have to take responsibility for that behavior because that is a, a behavior that exists in white supremacist society. And it's the behavior that is imposed on Jews. And it's also imposed on African-Americans. And I think with Kanye not being, you know, as articulate as me, you know, he comes out, he's just wild, you know, like, ah, oh, the Jews doing it. Like, bro, you can't say the Jews are doing this. It's like, you could maybe say Lee or Cohen or some other person that you personally had dealings with. But when you take that position, now you're, you're sounding like, you know, some crazy guy that, you know, wants to kill people. You know, you're using that same language. Right. So I think that's he's speaking from that frustration. Right. And, and that frustration is a real thing. And, and it's something that, you know, uh, like it's easy to deflect and say like, oh, well, you know, Kanye's crazy. And is it? Yeah, he is. Yeah, fine. Right. But the real point is, is what has the people who have identified themselves as Jews, who, who aren't the owners of these companies, by the way, they're not owners of the holding companies. Right. They're just working. This guy went to law school. This guy went to this place. This person did some writing. You know, they just had skill jobs in that same way. But there's always been this taskmaster, you know, type of relationship that Western society has always had over African-Americans. And when it comes to the media industry, you know, you could argue and say Jews have played that role. Two things. One, I take issue with the use of the word rape outside of when that word should be used. And I won't get into that too much because Thor is signaling that we have to wrap. And second, when Kanye was making all those claims about the industry last year and everyone was going at it, that it was anti-Semitic, I had an interesting take that I felt like wasn't voiced anywhere. And it was this, that was the business model. Back in the day, people used to have to cut records. This wasn't like digital music. I mean, the, the cost of producing an album was quite high. I would kind of make the comparison between these like record labels and I'm not from the industry, but between these record labels and something that I'm a little bit more familiar with, which is private investment funds. You know, a private investment fund will invest in what, 10 to 14 startups. Not all of them will become profitable. They're high risk, high reward. And people really go at it all the time. They're like, oh, these greedy Jews, but a lot of Jews went belly up in that industry. And second of all, it wasn't just only Jews. Somehow, you know, over and over again, even in this conversation, it's like there's a reinforcement of a stereotype that's that's formed on, on fallacies, on false information. And I also view it as like, it would be as if the startups came out afterwards and said, oh, it was hugely exploitative that the fund managers came in and my equity dropped from 100%, me and the founders, to 50%. But in this capitalist system that we live in, foisting blames single-handedly on Jews, you know, for exploiting the model or for creating the model in lieu of presenting an alternative model, I think is disingenuine because without that capital, these albums wouldn't have gotten produced. And also, I mean, it's like a chicken and egg thing, right? Like if you don't have the talent, then you're not going to cut the record. But also if you don't have the money to produce the record or to build the studio or to bring in all the musicians is like pay them or whatever. Like you're also not going to cut the record. It's like unfortunate to me that instead of it's not gratitude, it just seems over and over again to be saying, Hey, these people were wildly exploitative. And it was these people, those people, you people, you Jews. And it wasn't only Jews somehow the like Lords of capital, which weren't Jewish people. Like if you look at steel and oil and like the big rubber barons, 
they weren't Jews. And they're always, it's always Jews at the front of the line for, for getting blamed for everything that happens in society. So as much as I'm like, yo, let's meet somewhere in the middle and let's like really talk it out. I also take issue with a presentation of it as if those were the intentions or those were the facts, because I don't see it that way. If this was a two hour show, I think we'd be able to get into this a lot more. It's just, I, I had to kind of, I don't know, share that view because it's a different view in the States. And a lot of people in Israel are always like, why, Amy, why don't you move back to Israel, uh, New York? Why don't you live in New York? America's the land of opportunity. Yes, it's the land of opportunity. But as you know, you can go really big and then you can crash really low. You know, it's like the game of life. You can, you can make all that money and then you can just lose all of it. You won't even get healthcare. Like it'll just, they're going to foreclose your house, the whole thing. So again, the model is high risk, high reward. The model has been changing. It's been changing. Like it went through the 360 deals. Then it went through, okay, let's, let's form something like title. You know, I think that was Jay-Z's, right? Like let's do other things. Let's try to figure out different ways to make money. And the industry has changed. But in, during that time, and it wasn't just Jewish producers and Jewish accountants. It was also, I mean, there were black people and Christian people and et cetera. I don't know. It's just, it frustrates me, I guess. When we talk about Jewish healing, I think is whether that was the pervasive way things were done or not, it's just as on an ethical and, and moral barometer, you know, how, what role did we participate in that? Right. And when a person, when we are accused of it, do we have to run away from that accusation and say, oh, well, you're just anti-Semitic. You know, it's like a dysfunctional parent, you know, once you, you, you call them out and they just dismiss it and like, oh, well, you know, uh, you're, just, you're just young. You didn't understand, you know? So I'll, I'll clarify. What I find to be anti-Semitic is taking, is if there's a hundred people in the room doing the same thing, taking out the five Jews or the 10 Jews or the 20 Jews and saying, the Jews were bad. That's anti-Semitic. So holding us to a different standard is anti-Semitic. And the second thing that I that I think is problematic, and this is not me taking it on as being, you know, oh, it's anti-Semitic for, for them to say that. No, I'm saying high risk, high reward. These were funds. And those, those were the rules of engagement. And it's not like I'm not from the industry. I can't give like a lay of the land that Motown functioned this way or Def Jam functioned that way or Island Records functioned that way. I don't know and I didn't see the contracts, but as someone who has been working in the private investment funds landscape for over a decade, the deals that are cut with startups, it's also like you come in, someone's putting in money, could potentially lose their entire investment and they're going to get a high stake of equity. The reason why I don't think that's such a like an accurate comparison because most people who have startup companies are people who went through a education system, went to university, have degrees, and are educated. Because of the social construct in African-American communities, those resources are not there. There's broken school systems. There aren't opportunities. Tests like the SATs and the MCATs and the LSTATs and all these different things that kids learn how to take over a period of years are not even discussed. The communities are have drugs put into them. There's all types of things. So when you see that young guy who's a talented singer or dancer or whatever, he's in a vulnerable position. He doesn't understand uh, business models. He doesn't understand publishing. He's just trying to eat. He's just trying to pay rent. He's trying to give his mom some money 
So she doesn't have to go out and, and work three jobs, you know, assuming she even works. But the point is the same. So that young person comes into an industry that has a system that they know how much they're going to make. But because of this person's position and their lack of information, lack of education, I'm going to structure something with him differently than I would with someone else that was surrounded by people who were more educated, right? But in the in the free market, a bad contract doesn't doesn't last too long because there's a better contract out there for the parties. And so if there's the way that from the perspective of the record companies or for the labels or whatever, they're saying, I create an opportunity that didn't exist otherwise. And if they were really greedy and the rest of the market wasn't really greedy, no one would sign with them. They wouldn't survive that long. It would if they're turning over artists constantly and they're just using them for whatever and then putting them out, using them, putting out. Maybe I shouldn't have opened that door. <laughs> I'm like Pandora, you know? It's okay. It's a big conversation. I get it's a it. delicate conversation. And I feel like people don't get into it on the air because it's so delicate. Like, mm -hmm. I'm just like, Amy, don't put your foot in your mouth. Don't put your foot in your mouth. Like I'm going on eggshells all the time as if someone's like going to come out of the door and just like, listen to this episode and just be like, Oh, that, that chick is a racist fuck. And I'm not, I'm, I'm a good hearted person. I know who I am. And it's still complicated. I feel like I have to like, rah, 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 rah. so I guess my hope is that maybe wouldn't it be great to like wake up tomorrow morning in a world where we don't have to walk on so many eggshells because maybe walking on all these eggshells is keeping us from actually talking to each other and engaging with each other and having the difficult conversations that we need to have so that we can move forward. Thank you, Rabbi Mordechai, Yosef Ben Avraham for coming in today. For having me. And... Thank you to our listeners for keeping an open mind during this conversation. If you're just joining us, we're two neighbors in South Tel Aviv who met for the first time on October 7th, sheltering at a mutual friend's place. We started recording that night. Like our show name suggests, this is raw, emotional coverage. But lately, since episode 32, we've been hosting guests for longer conversations where we get in depth about different things from Captagon, that's episode 32, or forgiveness and Judaism in Israel, it's episode 34. Episode 21, we highly recommend you listen to. It's jam-packed with carefully curated highlights from our first month, and it's a chance to discover our wild, unfiltered journey in what some of our listeners were calling season one. And this is season two. If you want to connect and you want more Emotionally Raw coverage, there's a few ways you can do that. You can follow us on Instagram, shoot us an email, like our YouTube page, become a supporter on Patreon. The handles for all of these things are October 7th, the podcast. Our email is October 7th, the podcast at gmail.com. Links in the show notes. And... We'd love to hear from you, even if it's just to say hi. Your support, your feedback, and your love has been tremendous, and it keeps us going. And, yeah. Thank you to Shema, your home for podcasts. Jonathan Gall, Maya Schlesinger, Dor Comet, I'm Amy Sapan. Stay safe and stay tuned. 
Wait, you could also wear Zahav, even if you don't want to get piercings. Really, no piercings, no problem. I want to be like no, swag. No piercing, no problem. <laughs> I said, 